When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. This episode of the Birdshot Podcast is presented by Onyx Hunt and Final Rise. On this episode of the show, we're talking dog training, tips and tales with author George DeCosta. Thanks for tuning in to episode number 170. All right, welcome back to another episode of the Birdshot Podcast, everybody. Thanks for tuning in today. We've got a great interview coming up with George DaCosta, author of Tips and Tales on Training Your Bird Dog, book that I recently read and very much enjoyed speaking with George about. But first, thank you to all my Patreon supporters. Seems like every week I'm sending a little welcome note and a gift package to a new Patreon supporter, some Birdshot Podcast stickers and can coolers. Thanks to all of you. I sincerely appreciate it. And this being the first podcast episode in April, I've got a new Patreon giveaway winner to announce. Christian W. from Minnesota, the March Patreon winner and recipient of an Onyx Elite subscription card. Thank you, Christian. To be included in the next drawing for the monthly Patreon giveaway, all you have to do is become a Patreon contributor starting as low as 5 bucks a month. We'll get you some Birdshot podcast stickers and can coolers and eligible for those monthly giveaways in collaboration with our partners and sponsors of the Birdshot podcast. Thanks for considering it. Learn more at patreon.com forward slash birdshot. 
Don't forget to leave the Birdshot Podcast a rating and or a review in your podcast app, wherever you're listening, if you have that option available to you. Subscribe to the show, follow the show, share an episode or the show page. Every one of those simple things goes a long way in supporting the Birdshot Podcast and making sure we continue bringing you episodes like this one. Thanks for considering that. Certainly appreciate the support and the feedback. You can always feel free to email me at nick at birdshotpodcast.com as well. All right, a quick shout out to my buddy Simon, who literally called me while I was trying to record this intro. My phone was connected to my Zoom recorder here, unbeknownst to me, but I'm glad I answered because Simon was at a sporting goods store near his home and offered to snag me a few boxes of 28 gauge hunting and target ammo, as I have been struggling tremendously to find that stuff anywhere around here. I've been looking online a little bit. I recently picked up some 12 gauge, some light 12 gauge target ammo. Got a couple guns on the way this year from Upland Gun Company, and I was low on 12 and 28, having not shot a whole lot of that over the past few years. So big shout out, Simon. Thank you very much. I am now much better prepared for when that little 28 gauge arrives later this year. Everybody else out there still struggling to find ammo? You got what you need? Stocked up for hunting season? Got your target shells? I don't know about you. Seems to vary a little bit from person to person depending on who I talk to. Some places seem to have a decent supply of ammunition. Others, not so much. The stores around here have struggled to keep the shelves full of those common things like 12 and 20 target ammo, 28 gauge target ammo. Lots of unusual stuff on the shelves, but I suspect that's similar to what others are seeing as well. I haven't spoken with anybody truly in the know on the ammunition ammunition supply chain of late. I assume all the companies are working hard to keep up with demand and bump up that supply, but I have yet to see it, at least on my local store shelves. I'll keep looking. I've been thinking a lot about shotgun ammunition lately, planning to do some shooting. We've got a couple gun fitting events for Open Gun Company coming up in May. We're going to be testing out some light loads in one of our new 12 gauge guns, kind of thinking about a podcast interview or two on that subject. We'll see what happens, but it's starting to feel like spring around here finally got out yesterday, April 10th, for our first real spring training run in snow-free woods, and we are knocking on the door of the quiet season, so not much opportunity left. Kind of crazy. It's been a late spring in this part of the world, that's for sure. I haven't heard any drumming out there yet, but I'm guessing that will start soon, and I'm still of a mind that the ruffed grouse in this part of the world had a pretty good winter. It was consistently cold but we had a lot of snow and it stayed pretty fluffy and i think roosting conditions were quite good for most of the winter so hopefully we have a nice mild spring not too wet not too cold and with any luck we'll get a lot of chicks on the ground this summer all right one more announcement if you did not skip the ads from our partners at the beginning of the show i hope you didn't you may have picked up on the fact that the birdshot podcast has a new presenting partner and that would be final rise Hunting gear, primarily known for their vests. If you've been a listener of the show for a while, you will have likely heard owner and founder of Final Rise, Matt Davis, on the show multiple times. I just wanted to take a moment to mention that and let all of you know that I could not be more excited to have Matt Davis and Final Rise's support on the Birdshot podcast. Again, like a lot of the changes this podcast has undergone over the past year, there have continually been people reaching out to me and expressing their appreciation for the show and its guests and the community around it. And Matt Davis was certainly one of those people. And similarly, I was a fan of Matt Davis's business, Final Rise, right from the get-go. And let's be honest, there are a lot of great people, great brands, and great products worthy of our support in the Upland community. Matt Davis and Final Rise aren't the only one, but they certainly are one. 
And after wearing Matt's Summit Series vest for the past two hunting seasons, again, I'm just really excited to have Final Rise on board, the Birdshot Podcast. You'll be hearing a little bit more about current offerings, what's new for this year, what's in the pipeline as Matt and his team continue to innovate and bring us more gear and accessories that we can use to make our hunts more productive and enjoyable. So, of course, you can check out the vests at finalrise.com. And as always, I'm here. You know how to get a hold of me, Nick at birdtrappodcast.com. If you have any questions about Final Rise or its products, I would be happy to share my experience and perspective using them for the past two hunting seasons. And if you're in the market for a new hunting vest for this upcoming season, you should definitely head over to finalrise.com and check out what they've got. A couple different base models. You can sort of build them up or down as you see fit with accessories. They just came out with the most minimalist version of the vest, the Sidekick. If you're not looking for much or you're looking for a summer dog training or handling vest. I actually thought it would make a great clay shooting vest. I wouldn't mind having one for that purpose. It's got the shoulder straps on there, which I think you can remove, but I've often thought shooting in the vest that you're going to hunt with is not necessarily a bad idea. Kind of get used to that all summer. Just basically shoot year round with those shoulder straps. If you got a final rise vest, it's very open on the back. Got a big shell pouch for your empty holes, water bottles if you need it. I think it would be great for that. And that waist belt and the lumbar support, along with the shoulder straps, are constant throughout each of the models of the Final Rise, which is really cool. And they truly are the foundation of the vest. Everything is built up off that weight-bearing waist belt and the low-profile shoulder straps. They are a great combination. They do a great job of keeping the vest where it needs to be on your body, as well as keeping the weight where it needs to be down around the waist and off of your shoulders. Definitely check that out. That's finalrise.com. All right, that is absolutely enough from yours truly. Let's get into today's episode with George DeCosta, author of Tips and Tales on Training Your Bird Dog, listener of the show, and a mutual friend of George and mine, Levi Day, connected me with George, tipped me off on his book, said you got to get a copy, read it. And if you're interested, George would make a great guest for the podcast, which of course he did. So thank you to Levi for that. I appreciate it. I get ideas and suggestions for this show from all over the place. Sometimes my own curiosity or inspiration, but oftentimes it comes from other upland hunters, listeners of the show, and I am always appreciative of that. So George's book is available on Amazon.com. There's links and contact information in the show notes to this episode. Tips and tales on training your bird dogs. Definitely a how-to book, but there are plenty of stories, examples, anecdotes mixed in. Makes it an enjoyable, entertaining read. Really appreciated George's approach, both in the book and on the episode. I think after listening to this, you'll be very comfortable with George's methodology and how he goes about dog training and thinks about it. And like always, when it comes to dog training, there are many, many different ways to approach it to accomplish the same or different results, depending on what you're after. But fortunately, for amateurs like myself, there are people out there like George who are not only experienced and knowledgeable, but are also great teachers and willing to share their knowledge and their passion with me and now the listeners of this show. So with that said, I want to welcome into the conversation and onto the Birdshot Podcast, author of Tips and Tales on Training Your Bird Dog, George DaCosta. All right, George, well, welcome to the Birdshot Podcast. Thanks so much for taking the time to join me today. Well, thanks for inviting me. I, I appreciate the opportunity. Been looking forward to it. Yeah, Absolutely. I uh, I have recently finished reading your, is this your first book, George? Is it first and only book, George? 
Yeah, it is my first book. I have a lot of magazine articles that have been published in numerous different okay. magazines. I've been doing that for years. So a lot of the stories that you actually see in the book have actually been published elsewhere, and I added them to the book. And some of them are new stories. But yeah, I've been writing magazine articles for a long time. And this book was like three years in the making. I, I like to write when I'm inspired to write. I didn't write a book just to write a book. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it's taken a while to get out there. And, and I'm hoping I did it right. <laughs> so far, so good. <laughs> well, you, you, got my, you got my thumbs up. That's for sure. You know, I've been meaning to ask you this. Do you write, did you or do you write for Pointing Dog Journal? No, I, okay. I don't. Okay. Uh-uh. Um, only reason I asked is I I haven't been a subscriber of that magazine for a while. I I was and enjoyed it, and I remember I just have vague memories of a of a kind of a guy out west with with versatile dogs writing in there. It must have been somebody else, obviously. Yeah, it wasn't me. Somebody mentioned that to me. I think they um, and I'm not positive. I don't get it either. Um, somebody mentioned that they changed. They changed um, the person who was submitting their articles, and my my name came up, but nothing ever came of it. So, uh-huh. I, so I'm throwing, I guess I'm throwing a plug out there. Hey, if you need me, I'm here. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, shameless one there, George. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> what uh, what magazines have you written in? Just out of curiosity. Uh, the VHD, I have a lot of magazine articles in the VHD, which is the Versatile Hunting Dog article. I write a lot of articles for the AWPGA magazine, which is a Gryffindor magazine for Griffs, and a couple other ones now and then that, that pop up and ask me for an article. So those are the main two that I give a lot of articles to. They'll call me and say, hey, we're looking for an article on this or that, um, you know, this time of the season, and then I'll I'll pop one, I, pop one out for them. I uh I write a lot of articles myself that I just keep. And then if somebody calls me about one, I'll pull it up. Or if somebody asks me, like before the hunting season, we want one on sharp tails or something, then I'll, uh, then I'll do something there. You know, that fact, one of the articles I wrote, I'm not sure what magazine it's in. Uh, oh, it was in VHD. It was in the Versal Hunting Dog magazine. It was actually the front cover. It's called Old Dogs. I wrote that while hunting in Montana last year, sitting in hunting camp. Um, mm. And, uh, and I, that's what I like to do, by the way. That's that's what I like to do. Yeah, I think that's an interesting note. I mean, clearly you've recognized the value and the power of writing things down, even if you, like you're saying, you're writing it down, you don't necessarily have an end goal. It's not, you're not writing it for anyone other than yourself. And and that's a good good thing to do, George. <laughs> Yeah, I I enjoy it. Um, and I the, the you know the book came about because so many folks actually asked me to write a book, and I'm sure other trainers and other people get this. Mm-hmm. Um, I do a lot of I do a lot of a lot of training with people during the, I call it the training season. I actually when the hunting season comes along, I shut down my training. I'm first and foremost, I love my dogs. I love hunting with my dogs. And I love to be out in the fields hunting. So I just shut down training, and then. After the hunting season is over, then I call it my training season. And uh, I've already I've already had eight puppies come out to me and I've introduced them to, you know, birds, water, launcher shots and all that. Um, But people, when I work with them, I work with the person and their pup or dog. So, you know, many times people said, I think you're teaching me more, more than than you're teaching my dog. And I like the way you talk to me. I like the way you explain things. You make it understandable. You don't make me feel stupid or foolish and 
and you give examples as as we're you know training you really need to write this down so so other people can can learn from you and learn you know this type of method and so that's what kind of initiated and generated my okay you know maybe i should write a book and just not sit around and write articles and that type of thing so yeah that, that's what got me going and uh <laughs> it took a while to get there but i got there <laughs> yeah yes you did yep and yeah that t- that ties right into whether or not you would consider it the why of your book i i certainly i wrote it down um you did mention it at the at the end in the beginning um i'm gonna i'm just gonna read this quote this is from the last chapter but it was in the beginning too and that was i would be overjoyed if what i have to share will help enhance your relationship with your best friend and hunting companion and again whether or not you would consider that the the overarching why of the book i i I surely think that it was george yeah, you're absolutely correct. In fact, I think I think that came through because I believe that there's a um, a review on on Amazon that that somebody put that exact quote, just like you, oh. were talking about the book, and they put that exact quote in there. Um, and that is the why. That's that's exactly exactly correct. And and the, the fact that you got it and somebody else has mentioned it, um, I think that's a really a good thing because. Uh, hopefully it is helping people and helping dogs and puppies. And yeah, your uh ratings on ratings on Amazon are pretty darn good. You've got uh, you got a full five stars, 50 ratings up there and and I know that's uh that's not your highest uh priority or concern, but that's always a good sign, right? Oh, it's great feedback. It's you know, it's really great feedback. Um one of the things that I did in the book and and, and I, I think came through is and, you know, I mentioned that I did martial arts for many, many, many years. Yeah. And maybe I'll tell, tell you the story there. I did, I did martial arts for, since I was a kid and I fought in, um, full contact karate. And, uh, at, at some point in time later on in martial arts, I got involved in this kids program. It was an after school program and it was for kids that might not have so much money and might be having a problem in school. Other, other children can come to it too, but it was, it was mainly to get these children into an after-school program that, that showed them some discipline, gave them some confidence, get, made them re- have some respect. Um, and so martial arts does a lot of that. And when I got into that, I, uh, I was with uh, about 10 black belts that one person put this together, but we all got together and we were, we were training together and putting the curriculum together and all that stuff. And these guys came from many different walks of life in, in martial arts, you know, Taekwondo, Kajikempo, and all, all these different Kung Fu. And, and so we would do stuff together as far as what we we're doing for the children and put all these things together and work together. And then afterwards, we would spar and we would um, do techniques and we would share stuff. Well, way back then, this is a long, long time ago. This is like, ooh, she imagined myself now. This is probably about 45 to 50 years, <laughs> about 45 years yeah. ago. Uh, afterwards, we would we would spar and work out together. Well, initially, um, you know, I was trained in a couple of different, you know, styles, and that was the style that you did. That was what you, you know, that yours was the best, and this is how you do it, and blah, blah, blah. And I started seeing that, boy, this this person's technique right here fits me much better than the technique I was using in my style. I really like it. So I incorporate it. And in, in doing that with 10 different, you know, black belts where we could share stuff, 
I developed a much better style for me. Um, and so in dog training, I kind of took the same, you know, same track that not all dogs are the same. And, and there's many different methods out there that work well. And in between those methods, you can intertwine a lot of the stuff and pull out what's best for your dog that works best for your dog. So in the book, I might share, for instance, on just woe. I think I share either eight or 10 techniques on just woe itself. And, and whatever your dog responds to the best, two, three, four, five of those, that's what you use. That's what works for your dog. That's what makes your dog understand what you're trying to get it to do. And then once it does that, you give it praise or whatever. And then, and then life is great. You, you know, it's not confused. It works for your dog. So that's, that's kind of where that concept came from was the martial arts background and, uh, um, and, and 45 years of training bird dogs too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's a cool story. And that is um, definitely something I've picked up on with, with my dude, my oldest one. He'll be eight in June now. So I've only really been quote unquote a, a handler. And that's, I'm using that term very loosely for, for eight years. But there are lots of different methods. And, and I felt like that was something, again, in the book, you highlight whether you were talking steadiness or force fetch or you know, heal, you, you did touch on various methods or different approaches and kind of really laid the groundwork for folks. And I felt it painted a, painted a good picture of perhaps multiple methods moving towards the same goal, but getting there in, in slightly different ways. And I think that is a, that is a helpful thing for folks to get perspective on. Yeah. And it's interesting. Sometimes we come up with just new stuff at the spur of the moment. I tell you a story that just, just happened like four days ago, I think it was four days ago, it was last week, uh, Friday is when it was. I had another trainer that, that was having problems getting a couple of dogs to go to swim. Um, the, the dogs were going into the water, but they just were tentative swimming. And, and in the book, I put introduction to water there. I put a number of different methods. Well, this one's not in the book, but it, but it worked perfectly. And uh, the guy had a, had a dog that was, uh, I guess it's probably a year, year or so, because it was a fairly good sized dog. And when they showed up, I have a pond that I can raise or lower. And what I like to do is walk at the beginning. I like just to walk the dog through a pond. Like if you walked a dog across the shallow creek and a dog or a puppy follows you, yep. they just get used to going in and going back out and walking in and so on and so forth. And uh, um, they showed up. And for whatever reason, this dog was really skittish, looked at me. There was four other dogs there and looked at me and kind of backed and went into the, towards the, towards the uh, owner and barked a little bit. And, and he was like, uh Oh, I don't know what's going on here, but you know, he seems a little bit, a little bit afraid of everything that's going on. And I said, great, let's use that to our advantage. And I haven't done this technique before. And of course it's not in the book. So I threw him a long lead and I go here, just put this on your dog right now. And, uh, so he hooked it on his dog and I said, throw the lead out. It was about a 25 foot lead and just start petting your dog. So he got the dog's attention and I grabbed the end of the lead. And I said, now I want you and the other trainer to walk on the other side of the pond right now. Just take off, just go. And there's a, a little bridge that goes over. And so they, were, they start, well, well, that dog started pulling. It didn't want to be around me. It didn't want to be the other around the other dogs or the people. It wanted to be with its owner. Mm -hmm. So as they walked around the other side of the pond, I walked 
along the opposite edge. And I got to a spot that I knew the dog could walk in for a little bit, but then would have to swim for a bit. And I said, okay, stop right there and start calling your dog. Well, the dog's pulling at the rope and we're probably 15 yards away from the, sh- from the water on the shore. And I just let the dog start going towards the shore. It goes in the water, wants to go to its owner, walks into the water, swims right across. The guy starts clapping. Dog swims, goes right to him. I say, grab your dog, and I take my UTV. I drive over the, uh, on the other side, and I have him drive to the opposite side. So do the same thing. The dog swims. I go, now take a bumper and toss it out in the water. They throw it out. The dog swims out in the water, grabs a bumper. It's perfectly fine. Perfect. So <laughs> it, it's it's um, fear or concern for the water was outweighed by its want or need to get with its owner. Mm-hmm. And that's not a technique that you'd go, okay, you do this or that or this or that. It was just reading the dog and saying, oh, I bet this will work. And it did. It worked great. And um, so kind of open-minded on what techniques to use and looking at your puppy and, and and your dog and seeing what works. That's what I'm trying to come across in the book and use whatever. You know, there's, there's, a, there's a quote that I have in the book that I heard a long time ago, and it says something like this. I might not say it exactly. It says something like, um, if you hear a trainer say, do it my way because it's the best way, you should run away. And I totally believe that there's a lot of different ways to, to train a puppy or a dog and find what works best for you and your dog. And that's the way you want to use. Yeah. Really. You're, you're kind of stressing the importance of really being creative. And like in that example of, you know, you, you created a scenario where the dog's desire or, or the need to be with its owner, again, outweighed that fear. And you, you set up a scenario where it could, it could exhibit a, behavior that you guys desired and you did it by you know making the dog make its own choice i mean that's really the goal of training right yeah that is the goal of training yeah hey i'll throw out a quick tip for all the all the listeners right yeah. now in in the water one of the things that i i i've noticed and i use a lot in, in testing if i'm going to have my dog swim hey before i get into that don't let me forget that tip i'm going to write that down the tip for entering water let me let me just say this a lot of people and a lot of trainers will look at what I have to say and go, oh, man, you don't have to do that. You can just do this on a puppy. You can just throw a bird in the water or you can just fire when a bird is taken off. You can just use a gunshot. That works on a lot of dogs, mm-hmm. maybe 95, 98% of the dogs. I see a lot of the ones that it didn't work on. And now you have a problem that you have to fix. And now you have it associated maybe with the bird. So when I do things and I do things in a slow manner and in a sequence, it seems maybe a little elongated. I'm doing it because I'd rather take my time and do it in a way that the dog understands and it works great than have than find out, oops, now we've got a problem and now we have to fix a problem. So when I share some of these techniques, um, some of them may see elongated and, and I may go through them real fast with one dog and I may have to take my time with another dog if I see a dog that's noise sensitive or or has a little fear of the water. So I'm, I'm throwing that out there because a lot of times people will say, gosh, you don't need that. All I did was was toss toss this in and my dog went in the water. Well, that's true. That'll ha- that'll work with most dogs, but it's the one that it doesn't work with that, that could be a problem. Um, so if you go through it slowly and go through a sequence that, that the dog understands and, and then complies to and then is praised and, and gets rewarded, it makes that 
potential of having a problem you have to fix later on reduced almost to nothing. So I'm just wa- I just wanted to throw that out. Yeah, um, I I'll um, just jump in real quick. I, I think that's I, I really appreciate this the sentiment on that, and it's been something that you know I brought up as like a challenge in in me learning more as a as a dog trainer handler. You know, a lot of times you'll you'll read something and it's a it's a real simplified point A to point B, you know, do this, this, this with your dog and arrive at the destination. And as soon as the dog, your dog, as you know, you know, you know how dogs are going to be, right? They're not, they're not a textbook. Each one is different. Each one is individual. And that's a, it's a really, it's a core principle in your book. As soon as your dog sort of steps off that path that has been explained, then I'm left with, with like no way to move forward. And part of that is just lack of experience. You know, you, you've got all this experience. I need to gain perspective and learn these various ways of almost troubleshooting. You could call it by talking about these different methods and different approaches. It gives you more to fall back on and troubleshoot what exactly is going on. And and I think, you know, to be fair, it's not, not the fault of, of a said resource or piece of information. It's just, you, you really need experience to do that. And you've seen lots of dogs be successful in lots of different ways. And, you know, you can't, you can't replace that experience. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I would agree wholeheartedly, um, not only the experience, but I think knowing the tools mm. and that's why I give so many yeah. different examples on how to train because it, you might not have the experience, but you might try, you know, you might try a lift of the collar on force fetch and it doesn't work. And then you try, you know, whatever you try a squeeze or a massage or you try an ear pinch, whatever, but you, you don't have all the tools all the time to try different techniques. And then all of a sudden your dog gets it. Yeah. So I think experience is a part of it, but also having the tools. Um, and then the experience also lends to learning from the dogs and pups, what has happened? Like every time somebody brings a dog to me and they say it won't point or it sits on point or won't enter the water or whatever, the, 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 I always ask a lot of questions. Well, tell me what you've done. Tell me, you know, have you hunted the dog? Have you taken it out? I'm looking for the root cause of the problem. I'm trying trying to find it, um, and then I go from there. And and just a for instance on stuff that I've learned. Um, I don't teach my dog. Let me, let me, let me change that statement. I teach my dog to sit when it's young, but I don't use sit very much. I use whoa and I use down. And that's because I've seen a number of dogs in field trials and tests and that have been brought to me that sit on point. And I I go over that in in the book and, and, um, and the reason is, is sit has taken off the pressure. You know, you want to treat, sit, sit, the dog sits, you give it a treat. You get to where you want it. It wants to go outside, you make it sit. It wants to go outside. And so you, you put the pressure on it to stay. And then you say, okay, out and out it goes. Um, you know, there's just sit, 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 sit. So, um, there's physical pressure when you're pushing the dog's hind end down to make it sit. And then there's mental pressure when you're making it sit wait for a treat or wait to go outside or what have you so the dog learns if i sit the pressure will be relieved and so it goes on point and it wants to get that bird and it's hyped up man the bird's right there and it's a young puppy it's a fired up little pup and it's like i want to get that bird it's right there and so it sits because that's how it relieves the pressure Mm -hmm. and i can't tell you how many times i see on the internet 
or somebody talking and go, no, you can teach your dog to sit as much as you want. My, my dog sit all the time and it points well. Well, yeah, that's true. It works on 90 something percent of the dogs. I've trained, like I said, eight puppies so far. And I just got started about three weeks ago in my training season. And uh, one of the pups that came to me was sitting on point. And when he would say, well, the pup would sit. Um, and, you know, I asked, what have you been doing? How have you been training it? And of course, everybody made it sit, you know, I taught it to sit, it sits before it eats and da, da, da. So you start learning that these things could possibly cause a problem. So let's circumvent them and do it a different way. So we don't possibly cause that problem. Um, and so, so yeah, the experience helps the tools help. And the knowledge of what could cause a problem in the future, I think, helps. And I, and I try to put all that in the book. And I'm not going to get away from this tip because I don't want these people to go, hey, he talked about a tip and he forgot about it. <laughs> I wrote it down, water. too, yeah. <laughs> okay, so, so the tip is, and, and, and I use this if I'm testing my dog and it's getting ready to go into the water and it has to swim. And we're talking about a puppy here. And when I get ready to teach a dog to, to enter the water or teach it to swim, not teach it, but expose it. Um, if you've ever walked into a pool or a, a creek or a lake and you start walking in slowly and you hit the business area of your body and you just go, oh, that's cold and you stop, <laughs> it makes it a whole lot, lot harder to go in. In fact, sometimes people will just go, you know what, I, I don't think I want to do this. I'm not going to swim here. <laughs> not so it, hot anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's too cold. And they back out. Well, that happens to puppies, too. They hit the, their belly in the business area of their body and they can stop. And once the dog has stopped in the water, it's way harder mm. to get them to continue on into the water. So the tip is when I get ready to, to have a dog enter the water and even at a test, I'll carry bottled water with me before my dog has to enter the water. I will take and wet the belly of the dog and wet the growing area and all that area under its body. So then when the water, when it hits the water, the dog's already wet. It doesn't feel that shock. And then when we start going into the water, I have the dog going towards the water already when we go to enter it. For instance, if I'm tossing a bumper, I'm going to, I'm going to take that bumper about seven yards from the shore and I'm going to have the dog chasing the bumper at eye level going towards the water before I throw the bumper. It's not going to be standing there. It's going to be moving and it's already going to be wet. So as it enters the water, it doesn't feel the shock and it's already in motion. And that will, that will help a lot for the first time um, puppy going into the water. It's, it's already in motion. It's already wet. It, there's no shock and it'll go in much easier. So that that's the tip. What's your dog, what's your dog or your pup's belly? Um, when you're trying to trying to uh, expose it to uh, entering the water and, and you won't get that, oh, man, this is cold. I'm not sure I want to go in there, you know, reaction. Yeah. So, um, there you go. Pro tip there. That one is in the book. I do recall that one. Uh, I want to circle back to just briefly the, the sitting thing. I think that's a great example because, you know, you talked about reading online or something or, or hearing somebody say, you know, you can – I can teach my dog to sit, 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 sit. Well, we've all probably also heard the other side of that thing, which is where you're coming from, is never teach a pointing dog to sit, right? And and a lot of times a piece of advice like that, whether you hear it, read it, see it, it's there. You don't know why, but I know from, from my experience, I read that before I had my first 
dog, you know, and then I'm paranoid. Like, oh my gosh, I, I can't teach my dog to sit. I, I don't want to ruin this dog. It's always that, that fear of making the, making the terrible mistake with your bird dog until I heard it explained. And I heard this before I read your book, but you reiterated it, that what you're trying to avoid is making sit a default response for your dog to relieve pressure. Maybe it's just me. I know, I know others would be similar, but that like I need that context. And once I understand that, then you just have a, a much greater view of, of what we're trying to do and the things we can and or can't do with our bird dogs. Yeah, that's, you know, that's a perfect scenario on what we're talking about. And I'm going to transfer that into puppies because you understood or understand now why the sit can be of concern. Yeah. And when you understand it, you go, okay, I got it now. Yep. Now, now, now I got it. And that's the same thing with a, with a pup. Many times puppies don't understand what you're trying to get them to do and the why of why you're trying to get them to do it. And if you can, if you can do the same thing with a pup, get them to know what you, you're trying to teach them and then have a reward afterwards, the light comes on with them too. Yeah. They go, oh, okay, I got this. You want me to do this? You want me to point this bird instead of jump on it and then you shoot it and I get to get it in my mouth? Oh, I got it now. Okay, now I know why you want me to hold this point. I'm just using that as an example. Um, so that same scenario works with humans and it works with, with pups. I, I've got to tell you that that I think dogs and pups, and this is in the book too a few times, are way smarter than people give them credit for. And yeah. they do have a memory. Um, and one of the things I like to do is build a foundational memory for the future to, for them to fall back on when they're in the field hunting or, or training or testing. Um, and one of the examples I use when I'm working with my clients and how smart dogs are is, is a dog that'll pinch or pin a bird. And um, mm. I use this example. I'll, I'll say dogs can figure things out. And when they do, they'll learn. And so if you, if you train them in a sequence, in a method that allows them to learn, they'll want to learn to learn more. Um, you know, they, they, they enjoy it because the end result is life is better for everybody. And one of the examples is I use is, is pin and pinching birds. Now, my girl Coda, who's been to the Invitational for NAPTA, and she's, now she's deaf, and she's, she's a great dog, but she's always been the star of the show. And she learned to, to, to pinch birds at a, at a young age. And I'll explain this to, to people who don't know what that, what yeah. that is. And um, when, when a dog pinches a bird, it is, um, it's, the birds are moving and they won't, they won't hold. They just won't sit for a dog to get up and make a point. And the dog and, the, and a rooster is a perfect example. It just keeps moving and moving in front of you and it's running down and I'll tell the story. So the dog learns to get out in front of that bird and pinch the bird in between you and the dog. So the bird has to hold or is, is more likely to hold because it, it sees you or feels you and it feels the dog coming from the opposite direction. So the dog, the dog pins the bird in between you and then can point the bird and you can get the bird. Well, two things. One is you can't, you can't have a dog learn that unless you've given it its head and let it run out and fussed a few birds and missed a few birds and figured it out. So, so that's number one. When the pup's young, you got to give it its head. You got to let it be a puppy and let it get out there. Um, and number two, you got to have a fairly intelligent, intelligent dog. So I, I use this because I, it shows how smart dogs can be. 
I'm, I'm, I'm doing a guided hunt and I have a guy alongside of me and I'm doing a guided hunt and we're hunting, uh, um, corn stubble. And of course the pheasants are running down the roads and taking off in front of us. And Coda's just having a problem getting these birds to hold. They're just not holding. And we're hunting this, hunting this field. And all of a sudden she shoots out to my left about 35, 40 yards and takes off full blast. And the guy next to me, he's probably 25 yards to my right. He goes, your dog must, your dog, I think is chasing a rabbit or a coyote or something. It's running. It, it's taken off. And I go, no, she's going to go pin this bird. She's tired of this. And he goes, what are you talking about? And I said, well, she's going to try to get in front of this bird. Goes, are you crazy? And I go, no. And she, she takes off 125, 150 yards out. And then she makes a turn, comes back in and he's watching her. And all of a sudden he goes, Oh my goodness, George, I see, I see a rooster. It's coming down. It's, it's coming right at me. It's running right at me. I see your dog. Man. Oh, the rooster turned. I don't know. Oh, your dog's on point. And he's all excited. <laughs> we go up there and, you know, we get the rooster luckily. And he's, he's like, that's the most amazing thing I've ever seen. Well, any, if a dog can figure out, Hey, the birds aren't holding, I got to go way to the outside so that I don't flush the bird. I got to run 150 yards up and then come back in line with the bird and then pressure that bird towards my owner or the people that are hunting so that it gets nervous and it stops so I can point it. That dog can reason. That dog's figured that out. Dogs are way smarter than people give them credit for. In fact, many dogs are smarter than their owners and they're training their owners <laughs> instead of the owner training the dog. So um, I'm just using that example because I think dogs can learn to learn. And once they do, you can teach them anything. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think that's a great point. I would agree with that. You know, they've got that nose and they know how to use that nose and we can, we can help mold their behavior, but they are, uh, they're very capable. That's for sure. I wanted to ask you, I, I re recall reading the, the pinning the birds thing, and that's just kind of, it's, it's a topic of interest for me. And I've heard it a lot with pheasant dogs gets talked about in the grouse woods, you know, what makes a, a grouse hold or how can a dog pin a grouse? What do you think? Like, do you think when the dog is, so let's say the dog is downwind of the bird, right? It's got scent and that's where the initial point comes from. And then maybe you've got to move and a relocate. It's in the wind. And what do you think the dogs are doing when, like, are they just making a, like you're saying, kind of an estimation where they're just running way out ahead of this dog and then coming back in? Now they're upwind of the bird, technically, right? Mm -hmm. But they know it's mm -hmm. there because they've smelled it. I mean, you just think they're kind of calculating all that. And, you know, it probably doesn't work every time. But when it works, man, yeah, I could I could see, uh, you know, being blown away by that. Yeah, I think what happens is the dog does calculate it, but the dog is getting, it's getting frustrated. It yeah. hits what's called a hot spot. The bird has sat down or slowed down. Mm. Hits a hot spot. It thinks it's got the bird, and then the hot spot's gone, and then they're tracking again. And then it hits another hot spot, and the bird is slowed down and giving them another, you know, maybe you get a false point, and then they got to move forward. And the dog's getting frustrated that this, this, I can't get this thing. And and a and a smart dog that has been given its nose and maybe actually accidentally done this, meaning the dog's got out in front of you and it's worked the field where people might think it's too far out and then it starts working back and all of a sudden it, all of a sudden there's a bird between you and it someplace back in the foundational past it has pointed a bird in between you and the dog and you've got the bird and so the dog's getting frustrated it's, it can't get this bird and all of a sudden it decides hey 
I'm going to, I'm going to go on the other side, takes off and runs out front and pins it. And if it works once that dog will remember, it's kind of like a mark, you know, people, people throw a mark, they throw and people say, well, dogs can't remember. Oh yeah. Well, throw a bird out in the field, let the dog mark it, walk back to your car, play with your dog, put it in the crate, walk back out to where you toss that bird from and send your dog. It'll go right to that mark. They remembered it. And so they remember things. So I think part of it is the frustration on how to how to get this darn bird and sometimes some memory from the dog being allowed to get out there and make mistakes and get in front of birds and come back and pinning one accidentally. Yeah. I hope that made sense. Yeah, yeah, it does. And clearly they have a memory just bait. I mean, I see it with my dogs every day. We go out and do our exercise run in the same kind of trails and there's a few grouse there. Not all the time. We don't get into them every day, but you can bet my dogs are checking the same blowdowns and deadfalls every single day, looking, looking for that grouse and hoping to find it. (laughs) Oh yeah. There's a, there's a, there's a story in the book and I, I just, this one just popped in my mind because I was thinking all the cubbies I used to hunt when I was young. Um, But there's a story in the book about, about uh, us hunting with a bunch of pointers and i think it was either in kansas or oklahoma oh yeah yeah and uh and it's it's uh i think i i mentioned i, I think it comes with uh some people say that you have to you have to introduce gunfire over over birds so your dog associates the gunfire with the bird and i and i put an example of you don't need to do that dogs are way smarter than that trust me they'll they'll associate gunfire with a bird as soon as you drop a few birds regardless where they heard the gunfire um, and, and it goes about on about these pointers finding coveys, um, and they have beepers on them. And real quickly, our dogs our dogs learn if, if these pointers beepers are going off, we're running over there because there's been around. around. <laughs> Some retrieve this bird, but those pointers hit the first three coveys, and, and I think 20 minutes or something, 30 minutes they had got. Well, trust me, that was their property. That was the lease that this gentleman had in a. Russ and, and those those pointers knew right where those coveys were going to be because they remembered them. Like you say, when you're out hunting, they'll they'll find their hot spots and you take them out to the same area. Boom, that's where they're going. Yeah. So yeah, yeah they definitely have memories and, and better memories than me sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> yeah. Gearing up for your next hunt? Check out Ugly Dog Hunting Company for all your dog supply needs. Ugly Dog Hunting carries a full line of products for your bird dog and even some for you. Whether you're looking for dog collars, GPS tracking devices, kennels, beds, leads, training equipment, or first aid supplies, Ugly Dog Hunting carries it and a whole lot more. New owner of the company and friend of the Bird Shop podcast, Mike Nadusky, loves to remind me that while I do hunt with pretty dogs, every dog can be an ugly dog. Check out the entire selection of gear for you and your bird dog at UglyDogHunting.com. For many upland hunters, along with their passion for dogs, birds, and the places we chase them, comes a passion for shotguns. Upland Gun Company specializes in customizing shotguns for the upland bird hunter imported from Italy and shipped direct to an FFL near you. Select from one of their side-by-side or over-under shotgun platforms and customize the fit, function, and aesthetics to your liking. Design and build your next upland hunting shotgun with Upland Gun Company today. Visit uplandguncompany.com. George, we really uh, we we dove right into this conversation, and uh, I didn't uh, I didn't spend a lot of time at the beginning setting things up, and I don't I don't think that's that's necessarily a a big deal. I'll I'll work some of that into the intro, but I would be remiss if I didn't mention our uh, our mutual friend Levi Day. He's the one that. 
that mentioned your book to me and said, you got to interview George. And so I just wanted to give a shout out to Levi there and say, thank you. And I think you've done some training and hunting with Levi. Is that correct? Well, it's interesting that you should say that. And this is, uh, this is not planned people. So I don't, I, I don't <laughs> know if Nick knows this or not, but uh, yeah, I worked with both of his dogs, Margo and Josie. Um, one's a Griffon and one's a, a German short hair pointer. And I've hunted with him also. And he is coming in tomorrow for two days. Oh, nice. He'll be here tomorrow. Yeah, he's coming in from Oregon. And uh, I'll be training both of his dogs tomorrow and Saturday. And then he'll head back up to Oregon. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Levi's a great guy. He's a he's a fitness guru. And uh, I've had him actually uh, speak at um, my clinics because he's dealt with some some horrific things with his dogs getting caught in traps mm, and yeah. porcupines and you know, he's out there a lot. So I've had him, I've had him speak at my clinics and, uh, and, uh, yeah, great guy, great to hunt with a uh, good friend. Um, looking forward to seeing him tomorrow and looking forward to seeing his, his pups. You know, I might mention that, that, uh, I, I fall in love with puppies when I work with them. You know, I bond. And I think when you work with your pup in a manner that, that, uh, you're enjoying it and the pup is understanding it and uh, knows why you want it to do these things and life is better when it when it when it figures it out you create a really a deep bond and i think even mentioned that on the front of the book that the book is to help create or enhance your bond or something like that yeah um when i deal with a puppy any pup or dog that i deal with just the interaction with that pup and the pup learning to do things and then enjoying to do it and enjoying to do those things with me, it creates a, 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 a really deep bond. And that's why I like to work with people and their pups. I don't like to just take a pup or a dog in. I want to work with you and, and your, and your dog. And I'm not trying to push my training. I'm book people. So I'm not trying to push that, but I'm, <laughs> I'm just bringing up, I'm just bringing up that when you work with your dog in a manner and a puppy in a manner that it's fun, it's understandable, you're achieving goals that I think you create a, a deeper bond. And I love Levi's dogs. I mean, when they come and they see me, they just go crazy to, to, when they see me. And I, I have that happen a lot. I had a guy come from Minnesota, your area, by yeah, the way. Yeah. By the dog, uh, yeah. This was about a week and a half ago. Tim Tim called me. He had read my book and he'd heard about me. And he had a dog that uh, that wasn't pointing at it was kind of flash pointing, taking out birds, and it also didn't have much purpose in the field. And so uh, uh, he called me up, and I, initially I didn't know that that he was driving from Minnesota and talked to me and asked if he could come for a couple of days. And um, so he came down, and, and in two days we had his, we had his pup pointing like a rock star, and it was hunting a field like a seasoned dog just by exposing it in a in a sequence where the dog understood and it did really really well and uh when he got ready to leave his dog was just pushing against my legs and 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 i was petting it and he looked down and he goes i don't think my dog wants to go home with me <laughs> <laughs> had too much fun out there with george yeah and and uh the reason i just i, I mentioned that is because i'm thinking of levi's dogs and that uh, i bond in the short amount of time that I spend with a puppy and their owner, I, I bond with them and they bond with me. If you think about the person who spends months and the formidable years with a pup, man, if you do things right, you create a bond that will last that pup's lifetime and a good part of your lifetime. And it, it'll be really special. 
Yeah. Um, um, anyhow, just tossing that. No, out. I'm glad you. I'm, I'm glad you thought. mentioned that because it is a. It's a theme in the book, and I also think that, you know, I think that would be a, a very typical goal of uh, the typical listener to this show. You know, I, I mean, isn't that what we all want to work together with our dogs? And you know, we're having fun. The dogs having fun, and you know, it's not all rainbows and unicorns and and that kind of thing but i mean that's that's really what i mean that's certainly what i have in mind you know i want to i want a, a partnership with my dogs and i want them to like to love what they do and and fortunately they do and i mean that's what that's what motivates you as a handler and the trainer when you see your dog just like you know enthusiastically doing this stuff hunting and and training that's that's what we're all after really yeah absolutely that, that bond and that team atmosphere that you have with your pup and that then the pup wants to please you and the dog wants to please you and that's something special and you're right it's not all rainbows and unicorns and 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 and, I, and what i say is it is a team but somebody has to be the quarterback mm-hmm. somebody has to run that's the right. team and so it has to be you um and uh so but Boy, you can have a really strong team that's really tight and that does things really well and have a lot of fun and get to the Super Bowl or whatever the goal is right. and just have a fantastic time. But somebody does have to be the quarterback. Somebody somebody has to somebody has to be the boss. Yeah. And it better be you, because if it's the dog, then you do have problems. <laughs> Speaking of dogs, none of mine knocked at the door so I'm gonna cut them out. So, yeah. <laughs> no worries. <clears throat> that's good stuff. I'm gonna circle back to tips and tales, the book on training your bird dog and some training stuff. But I usually tackle this right away at the beginning, but I want to hear a little bit more from you, George, about how you got into bird dogs and fell in love with them and hunting and on, and all that stuff. You've you've had a long history with, with hunting and bird dogs. And I'd love to hear a little bit about it. Well, initially, um, I, uh, my family had a ranch on Maui and we had a lot of dogs, cattle dogs and different mixes. And we had pheasants and golden and, you know, ringnecks. And um, my uncle, my uncle Will, was a pretty, pretty famous horse trainer and rodeo star. Um, so he was always training horses. And my dad hated the ranch and moved us away. But I loved it. So I, I would always go back in the summers and work <laughs> with, with my uncle. And, uh, you know, I watched him train horses. And this is and, Maui, Maui, Hawaii? Yeah, Maui, Hawaii. Yeah. Man, that sounds yeah. like a yeah. – I've been there once, and, man, I would love to go back. <laughs> I'd love that place. Yeah, that's, that's where I was born. I was born in a little town that's gone now called Pu'unane, Maui. It used to be a, a sugar cane sugar plant cane area but yeah. we, we had a we had a, a ranch it's called uh, out i'm what they call up country and uh, so initially my exposure as a little boy was with you know cattle dogs and yeah. and dogs that we had that hunted birds and, and horses and things of that nature and the hunting was totally different we hunted pigs a lot there's a lot of pigs yeah. on on maui and we hunted haleakala crater and all those areas over there and and uh the way we hunted is we had dogs that would track the pigs and pin the pigs and the barkers and the grabbers that would grab the pig and held on. Those were usually pit bulls. And then my uncle would go up and, and stab the pig. And uh, that's how we hunted. And so it, was, and so it wasn't It wasn't anything like the beautiful pointing dog <laughs> out in the open field from Bob White Coil in Kansas, trust me. Um, but, you know, I was hunting. I was walking. And, and right. part of the, the hunt for me and I'm sure for a lot of people, is just being out there. 
I mean, you're you're yeah. out and you're hiking and you're watching the dogs and you're you're out with nature and you're being part of the food chain. And you know, I just loved that when I was when I was a little boy. So that was my fo- first exposure was was on the ranch and, and hunting pigs. And then when I was about nineteen, <laughs> this is an interesting story that's not in the book. I, I was dating a girl and I, my dad got me my first shotgun when I was 12. And so I was shooting and doing stuff, but I had not been around really, really good dogs. And um, I was dating this girl and her father and brother were going hunting with her, this girl's uncle. And they invited me to go. Well, I got there and, and, and this guy's in the book, Roy, 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 Roy's an old Marine. He's 85 years old now. And, you know, for those of you who have who have gone out and knocked on farmers' doors and gotten a place to hunt, you know, and you invite somebody, you don't expect them to invite somebody else that you don't know, right? I mean, you you right. went out there and found the spots. So I show up and I can see that Roy is like almost upset that these guys brought somebody and didn't ask him, and he's kind of a gruff gruff guy anyway and and I, I feel a little uncomfortable and I uh, I you know I just I just fit in well I shoot and I never say that it's my bird I never claim a bird I, I just shoot and if somebody says I think I hit that I just shut up yeah. and I watch the dogs and you know I'm, I'm, I'm very courteous and you know whatever just you know what you would do if somebody invited you to hunt and the way I was raised and uh, and so he had two field trial Britneys that were and just incredible. And I'm watching these dogs work and I'm like, oh my goodness. <laughs> wow. So this is this is what pointing dog world's all about. Yeah. And and he was he was field trialing them at this at the time. And after the hunt, he, he comes up to me and he sits down next to me and he goes, George, I want you to know you you can hunt with me anytime. Here's my phone number. You don't have to be invited by these guys. Um, you can hunt with me anytime you want. And bottom line on that, we developed a, a, a great friendship. I worked with him with pointing dogs. I still, he's in Wyoming now. I still talk to him. He's in the book. He got me hooked. And, uh, and from then, you know, that was like 45 years ago. I'm like, wow. age of myself. I don't know, 19 and uh, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> I won't do the math. Years ago. <laughs> uh, um, and we've, we've, we have, we uh, have done stuff together ever since. And since then I've, I've, uh, you know, field trial dogs, tested dogs all the way up to invitational hunted all over the United States, own different breeds, work with different breeds, train different breeds. I just was hooked, fell in love and been doing it pretty much all my life since then. Um, and uh, so that's my story on how I got, you know, got into bird dogs and, and into hunting. Um, and, and, and I have a passion for it. I enjoy, it grounds me to be out hunting with my dogs yeah. and watching my dogs and be out in the fields and working with, a with pups that I got in. You've heard me say that I, that I don't train during the hunting season. Yep. I got into field trialing and testing dogs training dogs to fill in the off season mm-hmm. because I couldn't hunt with my dog. So, yeah. uh, so that's how I got into everything. I hope I answered your question. Yeah, yeah, you did. That's super cool. How did you get into Griffs and then what makes, you know, what makes Griffs unique to you? What do you love about them? Well, um, let me answer that question by saying that I love 
pretty much all breed. In fact, yeah. I can't think of a breed I don't I don't love. I've had Britneys and pointers with short hairs and this and that, and, and I love them all. I do. I really, I really love working with dogs. And and everybody who has a dog, who has a dog that's close to them or who had a once in a lifetime dog, you know, they know it doesn't matter what the breed is. Yeah, you just you just love your dog. Um, but how I got into Gris was um, I was running field trials with my friend Bruce Collette. <clears throat> we were running Britneys and, and a pointer, and um, his his pointer got old and passed away. And he was actually going to get a draw flower, and found a Griff, and I and found a Griff that was bred to a, <clears throat> which is my line of Griff, bred to a dog um, named Mr. Brown or Jacques, who is kind of a famous. Real famous dog as far as being a great hunter, you know, VC, versatile champion, uh, just a really good dog. And so he got <clears throat> this information on this dog, and there was a breeding in Montana. And said, I want to go take a look at these pups and these dogs. So I drove up to Montana with him and uh, saw the dogs. We brought back four puppies. <laughs> Three went elsewhere, and, <laughs> and he kept one. And uh, the first time out, I had a dog back then, and there's a picture in the book. Um, that was, I think he was 13 years old at the time. Silo made it to 15 and he was just a, a wonderful, wonderful dog. And the first day out, Gus was, Gus was like six months old or something. And Shiloh went on point and Gus honored him from like 40 yards away, completely natural, just boom. And I was like, wow, that's impressive. And and then Gus pointed in his temperament, and I just fell in love. I was actually on the list to get a to get a setter at the time, uh, English setter, hmm. and I just fell in love with him. And I liked his personality when we sat around, and I liked the switch that comes on in the field. You know, mellow mellow when you're sitting around. Just a great dog, and and I don't want to sell Griffs or going crazy right now. But then when we got in the field, <laughs> the switch turned on, and so. That's when I said, you know what, I'll, I'll, I'll get a grip. I think I'm going to switch me. I like this dog's temperament. I like all its natural ability. And uh, and and so I got a grip, and it just took off from there. And uh, I, I love them. And the reason I, I tell this to a lot of people, I would have any breed of dog, um, and I enjoy them all. But I'll never be without a grip. There's a bond to me and, and the grips and you know, it's almost like a father and son or father and daughter that they're just that close and they're, they're part of my family. Yep. Um, and, and so I, I, I'll have, I'd have another Brittany, a short hair pointer setter right now, but I'll never be without a Griff. Um, I, I want that. I like that bond that we have and I like working with them um, as well as all of the dogs. So wouldn't it be nice if you could have, you have one of everything, George. Oh, I'd love it. I would love it. The problem, the problem with that is you feel so bad of, of, uh, like right now, my girl Coda, she's getting older and she's earned the right to be out there with me, but I've got to leave her in the crate sometimes yeah. or yep. leave her at home. And, and it, you know, it's like, oh man, you know, you've earned the right to be out there. So you have, you have all those dogs, but you don't, the Lord didn't give us enough time in the day to, to get them all out on exactly. the same day and, you know, yeah. be with them. So, yeah. yeah, no, I agree. I agree. And that's one thing about training is I get to work with a lot of different breeds. And so that kind of, yeah, that's cool. Kind of fills that, that spot a little bit, you know? So, yeah. 
Yeah. Well, I, I want to, uh, so we'll, we'll kind of, we'll circle back. I appreciate the background there. And again, I always love to hear people's stories and kind of how they found themselves where they're at, to, but we'll circle back a little bit to the book here and we'll kind of tackle a few of my notes that I wrote down. One of them, this came up a couple times and I think it, it ties into one of the, in chapter, let's see, which chapter is it here that the chapter three, the foundational first year, this is, this will definitely be of interest to folks. Again, if you got a pup coming this year, um, that kind of thing, they would love this. But one of them is, you know, remember you're always training your puppy, right? So, and, and, and actually I should point out that that's rule number two. Rule number four is let the puppy be a puppy. And I think sometimes the way that those two things are framed, it's it's almost like you have one or the other. Whereas in your book, you're clearly stating that you can have both. And, and the idea is that you're giving the puppy its head, which I think is what you mean more so by let the puppy be a puppy. Is that correct, George? Yeah. Yeah. Let the puppy make mistakes. Give it its head. Let it be a puppy. Don't put too much personal on it. You're not trying to finish a dog when it's a puppy. Yes. Let it, let it get out there. Let it make mistakes. Let it learn on its own. Let it have, you know, you don't take a, you don't take, and, and people don't realize this. They take a six month old pup or four month old pup or eight month old pup and they're putting all kinds. You don't take a two year old child or a four year old child or a seven year old child or a nine year old child. Try to make them a basketball star, you know. You, you got to let the child develop. So as I'm saying, let let the pup develop as a puppy, as a, as a child. Right. But what you're not saying is that we check out for the first year and do nothing or pay attention to nothing, and that that ties into that rule number two. Remember. You're always training your puppy. The pup is always learning. Whether you think you're training or you're not, you are always training that dog. Is that correct? That is correct. Yeah. There's I use a few there's a there's a few commands that I want my dog to learn. Well, I start training well when I have litters at six weeks old. The dogs roll before they come out of their pen and then I use come for my recall and I calm. So they're learning a couple of commands right off the bat. And we're going to learn those commands earlier on, early on, because if I have a dog that I can stop on low and a dog that I can recall or a puppy, I can, I can take that, that pup almost anywhere. And I'm going to, I'm going to teach those dogs commands, but I'm also going to give it its head on other things to learn on its own and, and to get out and explore and to be a puppy, not to put too much pressure on it. And one of the reasons I put that you're always training your pup and I'll use this example is is the pup is learning whether you think it is or not mm-hmm. every day, every minute of the day. So, and this is this is a this is a challenge I see a lot and a mistake I see a lot in people. They're teaching their dog to recall, and we'll say, "I use come, you can use here or whatever." Yeah. And they have their dog in the lead, and they they use their come, and they tug the dog, and the dog comes, and they do whatever, praise, give him a treat, and the dog works great, and, and the dog's getting the word come. It's learning. It's recall command. And then the dog's off the lead. And for one, they, they try to use the word come in it. The dog is with another puppy playing and they're trying to get the dog and it's too fired up to come. So they, they might make a mistake in doing that. Learn when to stop. Stop trying to use a command that you can't enforce at the time because now you're training your pup to not obey that command. Yep. And don't use the command that you can't enforce once you realize you can't enforce it. Meaning 
So your dog's out there and it knows what the recall command is. It knows to come. It knows to come when you say come. And it's, it's doing something, whatever that may be. And you say come. You know, you know, CK come. And CK doesn't come. CK come. Come. Come here. Come. Come. CK come. Well, you just told that dog to come five, six, seven, eight times. Yep. And it's not coming. So you just have taught that dog that it doesn't have to really come on that first or second command. Yep. So you're always teaching your dog, be careful on doing things like that. So if I use the word come and my dog doesn't come, I'll get its attention. I'll say its name so it knows I'm talking to, to him, CK, come. And if it doesn't come, I'm not using that word again because now I'm not teaching my dog that it doesn't have to come to its recall command. Yep. I'm going to say, hey, buddy, hey, over here. Hey, 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 let's go. I'm going to use something else or I'm going to walk over and get the dog if I can. Now, once I've got the dog, I'm going to wait a little bit. I'm going to put it on a lead and I'm going to I'm going to say, hey, come, come here. I'm going to make it come so that it knows you were supposed to come when I called you. But I'm not going to teach it not to come by repetitively saying something I can't enforce. Yep. So that's, you know, that's part of the you're always teaching your dog. The other thing is um, dogs learn a lot by osmosis. And what I mean by that is if you think of a, a child that learns how to speak in its natural language, um, you're not teaching a two-year-old to teach by, by, by teaching it grammar, teaching mm-hmm. it the language. Yep. It's learning by listening and watching, right? Um, and pups do the same thing. So, for instance, when I will my dog at, at, the, uh, at the door before it goes outside, I always will it. Remember, if I have to hold it, when I let it go, I say out. When it comes out of its crate, I say out. When we go in the field, I, I hold it, and, and then I say out or hunt them up. I repeat a lot of things all the time that I'm not enforcing. I'm not doing specific training techniques, but the dog learns by osmosis, oh, out means go forward means to go out in front of you and and it learns that by osmosis so there's a ton of things that that it can learn by just every day you're always teaching your dog always yeah um and so you know just be aware of it you're either teaching it right or you're teaching it wrong um regardless of where you're at and 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 what you're doing by the way i was at and i'm just going to throw this out i was at a a big party barbecue after a test one time and i had one of my dogs that was running around and i said whoa and there was probably i don't know 80 people there and i said whoa and my dog was amongst all the people and i've even done this in my training clinics and my dog didn't whoa it was fired up to go see somebody else and i said whoa the second time and it didn't whoa. And I walked up and I picked my dog up by the belly and under the chest. And I, and I shook it like a teeter-totter only sideways. And I set it down and I said, whoa. And I walked away. And by then there's like 25 people looking at me. What's this crazy man doing? <laughs> and, uh, and my dog whoa. And I heard one guy say to a trainer, a lady trainer I know. And, and he goes, uh, what is that guy doing? And she goes, he's doing the right thing. His dog didn't mind him. And he went over there and made that dog mind in front of everybody. So the dog realized that regardless if there's a bunch of people around, Mm -hmm. this guy is going to enforce my woe. And so I will do that because you're always training your dog. If I let it get away with 
with disobeying me in front of everybody, it's going to learn, ah, I have to obey him when we're by ourselves. But if there's a bunch of people around, I have to do what I want. He can't enforce it. No, yeah. I will enforce it right here, right now. And embarrass myself in the middle of a clinic. <laughs> My dog's not working right, <laughs> so I'm going to go fix it. <laughs> so anyhow, you're always you're always training. I hope I hope I'm going along the right lines there that you're, that you're asking. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad you explained the recall example there because I think I think that's a good one that makes sense to a lot of people. And it is that's exactly how you put it in the book. And I'll I'll highlight it because there are, it comes up more than once with different techniques and different goals that we're when we're training our dog. But giving people the like some real steps and the approach to the process of, okay, if your dog is across the yard and you want it to come over, it's playing with another dog. You say here, it doesn't respond. You might try one, you, you try one more time. And I'll, I'll say it exactly because this, this is exactly how you described it and said it in the book. I'd say Hartley here. If the dog still doesn't respond, we're done using that, using that command. We're going to do something different. And that sounds very obvious when you say it, but it's a, like, it's just a natural thing that we do, right? Like we want something to happen and we're not necessarily thinking about training our dog or the damage we're going to do. We're trying to get our dog over here for one reason or another. So then we start saying here, 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 here. And we, and we overuse that word. So I just, I appreciated that in the book, how you, you really laid it out simply in that, say it once, get the dog's attention, say it twice. If it doesn't work, we're doing something different. We're going to go use a different word or we're going to go get it ideally in, in that situation. Right. Yep, exactly. And people, now that we've mentioned that they'll see it happen. They might even go, Oh gosh, I've done that myself. Yep. Yeah. I remember doing that myself, you know, and the other important step to that is, is don't do it right away, but within a short period of time, enforce that here, put that, put that, that recall command, but put that dog on a lead mm -hmm. and make it come. Cause it didn't listen to you twice. Yeah. Right. And we got away from that, but we're going to go do another quick session here real quickly because you were supposed to come to me. So, so we're going to do a couple here's with a positive at the end. We're going to recall that dog. We're going to have a positive. So, so it's always positive when that dog gets to you. Um, and, uh, and, uh, that way we establish that we're not teaching our dog to disobey the here. We're reestablishing that you were supposed to come. So, so you're going to come. Um, another another thing I'm going to just step back because it just got in my mind, and yeah. this is a mistake I see a lot of people make a lot of times. And I just did this yesterday with somebody, and it just popped in that we're always teaching our dog. When when a pup first gets a bird, you toss a dead bird out for it to retrieve, or you shoot a bird over it. A mistake I I see a lot is the puppy will come running back. And by the way, I back up so that I don't go towards the pup. I back up so yeah. the pup wants to come to me. It's not like I'm coming to take away your prize. I'm backing up. I'm relieving the pressure. The pup comes comes to me. So what a lot of people do, and I saw a guy do this yesterday. The pup came right to him, and he reached down to, to grab that bird out of that dog's mouth. And I said, "Don't don't do that. Don't don't take don't don't take that bird." And he's like, "Oh, okay." And uh, this is this is a friend of mine who has one of my CK pups, Kirk, and and uh, and so we let the pup have have the bird and play with it. And we kept, I keep the dog moving. When it gets, when it first picks up a bird, I want that dog moving. I'll slap a lead on it. If I don't have any, say, come on, let's go. Cause when a dog's running and moving, it can't eat the bird. It yeah. can't, can't chew the bird. It holds on to the bird. So the, so the puppy learns to hold on to the bird and move with it. And it learns that you're not going to take the bird away. When I take it away, I give it right back mm -hmm. to the pup and then we do it again. 
And so many times I see a pup run out, grab, grab the, grab the bird, run to the owner and the owner grabs and takes it right out of the bird, out of the dog's mouth, takes the bird right out of the dog's mouth. Well, a couple times of that. And all of a sudden you got a pup that doesn't want to come back to you with the bird. Yep. And it comes halfway back and goes, nope. Or it starts holding the bird harder because it doesn't want to take, take you to take it away. And that's because you've taught the dog that you're going to take that bird away as soon as it gets to you. When it's a young pup, I like to let it hold the bird. When I take it, I give it back to the, the, the pup right away. And say, here you go. You want it back? And then play with it, take it, and give it back. And the pup realizes now it's built the foundation that when I bring this back, he's not going to take it away. He's going to praise me. He's going to give it back. He might toss it again. I get to run and hold it. That's a whole different foundation of teaching than he's just going to take this bird away from me. And Kirk actually mentioned, he goes, man, he goes, I, I've trained a lot of bird dogs and I never thought about giving it back or letting it hold. And you're right. My dogs in the past, some of them, boy, I have a beast now she doesn't like to retrieve. And that is so simple. I didn't realize I was teaching my dog not to bring it back instead of to bring it back. Yeah. So just, just a tip and something to toss out there. Sorry, rambling. No, no, very good one. And again, I mean, a lot of it, it ties into to the main themes here. I, I'm glad you also mentioned the training through osmosis and explained that very well. And that's, again, that's something that I've picked up on over the years and was, you know, it, it was made even clearer through reading some of the stuff in your book. But again, the simple things, you're training your dog all the time, every day. If you take shortcuts in your daily routine, you know, they, they're not all going to come back to bite you, but there's a possibility that they could. And I'll, I'll give a perfect example of, you know, my two dogs, my first dog, I just, it was something I overlooked, didn't, didn't really pay attention to, but he's, he's fairly excitable. And when it comes to going outside or standing on the tailgate, putting the collars on all that stuff. He kind of has happy feet. He's excited. You know, he wants to hunt, he wants to go. And I just, you know, sort of fought through that and strapped his collars on and get him out of the truck as soon as I can. That's what I did with dog number one. Well, but before, luckily before I got dog number two, I realized that's not really what I want. I want my dog to stand there calmly, have quiet feet flat on the floor. And I very, very simply did that with my second dog, Rose. She'll be two in May. Before we go outside, while she's standing on the tailgate, I waited for quiet feet, waited for the dog to display the behavior that I wanted. And then the dog gets what it wants, which is to have the GPS collar strapped on so it can get cut loose in the woods. That's just really, really simple stuff throughout your daily routine that if you pay attention a little bit to that stuff, you can teach your dog a lot, right? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely correct. That's the process of osmosis that we were talking about and the training all the time. Your dog's learning right there every time you do that. Yeah, great example. Yep, so there's there's plenty of that in the book. We, we of course, don't have time to get into all the nitty-gritty details, and that's not really the goal of this. But, you know, you go over force fetch, hold, steadiness, heel, whoa, everything, everything really is in here. And a lot of it is... You know, it's going to be explained in sort of the methods that you use and prefer, and you're going to bring up other examples of, of other methods and how other trainers might do things to sort of give people that context. It's all there. Are there, you know, you mentioned people coming to you with some common problems. What, what are the things that, what else comes to mind, the things that you think people struggle with the most and, and the most common problems that you end up, you know, helping them out with? The most common by far 
is um, my dog won't get out there. It doesn't seem to have a fire under its belly and it just doesn't range. And I can tell you, and we haven't touched on this. I don't make my dog heal in the first year. I don't make any of my dogs heal in the first year. And some people will disagree with that and that that's okay. And let me qualify that. If I have a, if I have a high strung dog, maybe I have an English pointer or short hair that's going to get out there and hunt. You can hit it with a two by four and it's going to hunt. I, I might teach it heal to get it under control, but generally speaking for all my dogs, I don't teach them to heal because I, uh, I want them out in front of me. I put them on a, on a cord and I put a half inch underneath their belly and I teach them the easy command, which is to slow down. So they're walking right in front of me. And if they start to go too far out, I go easy and they slow down because what, by far the biggest one I have is people coming to me because their dog doesn't have fire under its belly and it doesn't range out there and, uh, and, and search well. And, and if you think about it, puppies want to please their owners once they start bonding to you. Yep. So if you've had that dog heal right off the get go, when it's a little pup and you don't let it get too far out, it gets 20, 30 yards out and you're calling it back. Come here, come here. You're not giving it its head and you're making it sit all the time. The pup becomes handler dependent and it wants to please you. So it thinks its job is near you. And then you go out in the field and it doesn't have any range. You didn't let it go. You didn't give it its head. You didn't, you didn't let it stay in front of you all the time. So it stays close by. And, and that's, that's a, that's can be a difficult one to fix. It's like I say, um, you know, you can, you can pull on a rope. You can pull that dog back in later on without a problem most of the time. But you can't push it out very easily. You can't push on that rope. So that's probably the one I see a lot of. The other one is my dog won't point. Um, and some of that is because the dog's genetics might be a little low and we have to bring out the pointing instinct. But many times it's because people have worked their dogs with flushing dogs. They have shot a lot of birds over their dog that it didn't point because it's hunting season. And, and, and so they have taught, and then they've also made the retrieve a primary, meaning they, they worked on fetch a lot. Boy, the, 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 look at my pup. It's five years old and it fetches the hand every time and it's praised and it hasn't pointed yet. It hasn't gone out and found birds and pointed. So it gets to the bird and it thinks, well, you know what? This guy or girl really loves it when I bring this thing back to him. I'm just going to grab it and bring it back to him yeah. or her. And uh, so they focus a little too much on retrieve earlier age. Now, if you've got a dog that you're training specifically for waterfowl, that's a whole other deal. Now you have to focus on it. But generally speaking, with a pointing dog, you want to give it its head. You want to let it be in front of you all the time on that first year. And you want it to learn to point before you really focus on the retrieves. So that would be the second one. And I take all those dogs back to the basics to get them to reestablish the point that they don't get a bird. If they break point or don't point, we just walk away and ignore them. And when they do, even if I have to help them point with a checkboard, when they do point, we shoot a bird or toss a dead bird so they get a reward of getting the bird. So so I go back to the basics with them. But those are those are the two biggest ones that I have is my dog won't range out there and uh, and my dog's not pointing. It. And and both of those are because of human error yeah. most of the time. Yeah. And then there's other ones, you know, like it won't swim and 
and other things and won't retrieve. Horse fetch is a long process. You, you, you've touched on that yeah. quite a bit. And, and I, 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 you know, we're taking so much time already. I don't want to go into all the techniques, but I will say that horse fetch is, uh, is something that you can do on your own. And when you have a professional do it, which is not a bad idea, you don't know what te- technique they're using. You, as a, as an owner of your dog, your pup, you can learn to read your dog and you can take your time. Force fetch is no different than sit or come or down or whoa. It's just a lot of techniques tied together. It's, it's the fetch to go out. It's the hold and it's the hold to come back with the item. You just have to tie them together, but you can take your time doing it. So I get a lot of that. My, my dog won't retrieve. Well, I let the dog have the first year pointing and then we go into force fetch. Yeah. Yeah. It's worth mentioning that you, you do give that a pretty good coverage in the book, the force fetch. And again, yeah, we won't, we won't break all that down here, but that's uh that was of, of interest to me as I was going through the book because my buddy Nick Adair of the Gun Dog It Yourself podcast, he's he's doing a little force fetch training series right now. And I actually went on I did one of the little outros on his show as somebody that really has no idea what they're doing as far as force fetch training. And I've got two setters that one has a little bit more natural desire to retrieve and that's the younger one. And so I'm kind of interested in how I could shape and mold that behavior moving forward. But I definitely appreciated the chapter you had in there covering all the different methods, techniques before kind of laying out your own. And again, going back to that, Hey, you can do this and you can, this is something that I wanted to highlight because it was clear in both your book and this interview that I listened to for Nick on his show, you can do force fetch training and your dog and your relationship with your dog can be better afterwards, right? Because that's, that's everyone's fear is that you're putting too much pressure on it. You're going to screw it up. And that's, it's a legitimate fear, but the idea is, is that you can do it and you can improve your relationship with your dog, right? Oh, absolutely. A hundred percent. I think it improves it almost every time. Like I say, you're a team, you got to be a quarterback. And, and in the book, I'll just touch on a real quick story. There's, there's a dog that was brought to me. Dog came in from Romania and it was pouncing birds and eating birds. And, and it was brought to me and, and I had to force fetch it. And, and when we first started, the dog bit me, just bit my hand. It was like, I'm eating this bird. You take it away. And it, it had an attitude. It was a big GSP, just, just, just a brute by the end. And there's a photo in the book by the end of force fetch, that dog absolutely loved me passed its UT test. And when I went up to congratulate it, it just jumped up and put its, put its arms, its legs and paws around me on my shoulders and start looking at me. And one of my friends, Jim Dobbins took the photo and it's a precious photo to me. That all came from force fetch. That all came from, we have to establish who's the boss. Who's the quarterback? And when we do, and when you comply, the team becomes a great team. And guess what? We go to the Super Bowl, baby. We have a blast. <laughs> and uh, and the dog loved me for it um, after it bit me the first time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but hey, that's that's progress, right? <laughs> yeah, it was. Yeah, it was huge progress. So yeah, you're absolutely right. You can do it, and you can do it at a slower pace. Yeah. And you can read your dog, and and you'll be a better team for it. So. Yeah. Very cool. Well, I, you do love to hunt. And, and before we wrap up, I just want to talk a little bit about, about hunting and you're, you're out in Idaho, right, George? 
Yeah, I'm okay. in Idaho. Yep. Yeah. So, so talk to me about you know you mentioned a couple of times that you uh, when hunting season rolls around you're you're no longer George the dog trainer you are George the bird hunter. Talk to me about you know what what birds are you chasing? What do you love about hunting season? Well, I mostly chase chucker because I'm I'm looking out my window right now and I'm looking at the why he's out here and I won't give, I won't give you the place I'm looking sure, at because sure. everybody will show up <laughs> to chucker hunt. But uh, literally, I can drive about twenty to forty five minutes and be at a lot of chucker hunting yeah. areas around around me. And they, I, so I hunt Oregon and Idaho and I hunt chucker a lot. My favorite hunting is quail hunting. I I grew up when I moved to the mainland. I grew up quail hunting and pheasant hunting. Pheasants can be tough, by the way, I'm going to toss this out. Pheasants can be tough on a young pup, so be careful. But I love quail hunting because you get the covey to, 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 you know, to flush, and then yeah. you get to go find some of those singles and doubles, and boy, that's fun dog work. Um, so chuckers, chuckers give me that feeling. Um, and then I run into huns up there. There's huns up there too. So chuckers and huns and quail, I hunt a lot around here. Um, I like to go to Oklahoma. My friend uh, Jimmy Clark has a bunch of property in Oklahoma, and I go hunt with him and, and another guy named Russ. And I have bobwhite quail there, and that's that's just fun. I love hunting bobwhite quail. Um, I go to Montana and uh, and hunt uh, sharptail. I did hunt some sage grass there, but mm. I don't hunt sage grass anymore. Where, where I hunt it, or I do hunt. There's a lot of sage grass, but um, the dogs find them, but they're I, I just don't want to shoot helicopters coming out of yeah, the ground yeah. anymore, you know. Um, <laughs> but I love the sharp tails. I love to have sharp tails, yeah. bob white, pheasants I hunt in Kansas and, and uh, you know, Oregon and, and Idaho. So I, I pheasant hunt there. Um, I'll go to Arizona. I went to Arizona a couple of times, once when I was young. And then my friend Frank Puccio goes down there. There's a story in there. Almost got lost. Frank Yes, I almost got lost. <laughs> the week of touch on GPS is for you and your dog, but that's a whole other story. But yeah, yeah. so, um, you know, I like to travel. I like to hunt uh, different upland birds. Upland is my passion. Yeah, I do hunt a lot of waterfowl on my property that I train on. The Gundog Ranch is on the Payot River, which has a lot of geese, and I have a big pond that I can raise or lower for tests and how I want. So I get a lot of duck hunting in. And that's awesome. Of, that's kind of... Yeah, that's my off day. You know, you can't run your dogs on, especially these lava walks up here around me. You can't run them all the time. You'll just beat the heck out of them. Um, so, but you can sit in the blind and take a day and, and hunt over the pond and get a sure. few ducks. That's, yeah. that's fine. Um, you know, I love listening to the to the ducks in the morning before before the sunlight comes out, hearing them talk and trying to talk to them and, you know, that kind of stuff too. That's, that's so I, you know, I, I do a little bit of everything. Yeah. Um, Upland is, Upland's my favorite, and uh, I travel all around doing doing all of them that I can. I don't do the grouse in your area or the, or <laughs> you know, I haven't hunted up north there. I've hunted up northern Montana all the way to the Canadian border, but uh, I haven't hunted, you know, like Minnesota and stuff for grouse, so I don't have a – that I haven't done yet. Um, yeah. You got all those pretty views and the big scenery out there. I get it, George. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. See, I'm plugging. I haven't done that yet. Maybe I'll get invited someday to, to get out there. No, I get invited. Excuse me. <laughs> yeah. No, I love it. But I want to get out there and hunt, you know, the mixed bag from what I understand of Idaho and, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the States out that way, you know, the, the various birds you can get into. And I mean, like you, I mean, I, you know, I'd love to do it all. I wish I could, but we, you know, we, we've got limited days and time and dog power and 
just got to enjoy every moment we get out there. Absolutely. Yeah. What a gift we have. I, you know, I look outside and I, I, I say it all the time. What a gift we have yeah. to, to live in a country where we can do all this and yeah. be out there with our dogs that love us and we love them. I mean, it's, it's we're blessed. We truly are blessed. And the more time I spend out there, the, the more blessed I feel. To be yeah. honest. Yeah. Very cool. Well, George, I, I really appreciate you taking some time to come on the podcast and chat with me and the listeners. The book is Tips and Tales on Training Your Bird Dog. It is available on Amazon. Is that the best place for folks to go if they were looking to learn more, pick up a copy? Yep, yep, that's it, Amazon.com. I just put it out in hardback. It's really pricey in hardback. I did that to give it, to give some gifts to some people in case somebody wanted it. I would, I'm just, I'm, listen, I'm, I'm unselling my own book. I certainly wouldn't buy the hardback copy. It's too pricey. <laughs> I get the paperback and, and make a bunch of notes on it and put highlights to it and do whatever you want, you know, to, 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 to make you and your dog have a better relationship and enhance your enter future with some good training. I hope, I hope that's what the book does. Yeah. I uh, appreciate you sending me a copy of it. I uh, in, enjoyed reading it and I hope others after hearing this conversation, if they're more interested, they should definitely check it out. Is there a way that folks could potentially get in touch with you or ask questions or anything like that? Yeah, I have a, I have a, a YouTube channel, just Google George DeCosta. It'll, it'll pop up. Okay, and you cool. can see some of my, my, my videos. I actually mentioned that in the book because, uh, you can you can read the techniques and you can actually see some of them yep. on some of the videos that I've done, and then uh, you know my website's the Hunting Griff, so my email and stuff's on there. Oh, cool! I can give it here if you want, but my email's on there. So. Yeah, I'll I'll grab all that stuff and put it in the in the show notes, but I'll make sure I get you your website. I'm writing that down. Perfect. All right, George. Well, thanks again for taking the time. I appreciate it. And we'll have to keep in touch. I'd love to get out there and maybe hunt with you and Levi someday. But nonetheless, certainly appreciate your time and, and what you do and sharing this book with us. Well, I appreciate you inviting me to be on. It, it's, it's been an honor, and I, I, I thank you for that. And you are welcome here anytime. I've got a place and the areas to hunt. So if you ever, if you ever get the chance to come out west, way out west, just come. We'll, we'll get you out there. Appreciate it. Thanks, George. Uh, thank you. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. That does it for this episode of the Birdshot Podcast presented by Onyx Hunt and Final Rise. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, like, and share, and we'll catch you on the next episode of the Birdshot Podcast. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. 
Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundoggy Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.